Hello, and welcome to another episode of Blood House, the show where we talk about art house horror movies. I'm your host, Joshua Conkle. And I'm your co-hostess with the mostest, Drusilla Adeline. Happy New Year. Welcome, welcome, welcome to 2023. Yay! Yes, in all honesty, it is New Year's Eve as we record this, (laughs) but it's the afternoon. Not What if we were recording this at 11.30 p.m. on New Year's Eve? (laughs) The year changes in the middle of the episode. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, How are you? What's going on? I'm doing well. I've had a great time over the holidays, relaxing, recouping, working at my house, getting like cozy sweaters and new furniture and bringing all of my vintage posters out of storage and hanging things up Mm -hmm. on the wall, really making my place feel nice and cozy and lovely. Friends have been coming over to help out and make things just look really, really stupendous. So, um, there's like a whole nun wing of my house now. (laughs) Um, my staircase is all murder mystery themed. Wow. Um, you have so, so many posters. I can't believe you can curate to that level. It's not just, po- it is posters. I've got original posters up in the murder mystery section for like the last of Sheila. Um, I have the mm-hmm. Mondo. We buy your kids print of, um, murder on the Gordon express. I have original posters for clue and things like that. But then I wow. also have, floating shelves and i'm building props from clue to sit oh on the floating gosh. shelves so i've got a little like candlestick um i'm yeah. gonna tie some rope into a little noose and they're all just gonna live up there for the time being i love that i'm really excited i'm really like this is the first time i'm living alone so i get all like build a house top to bottom and i get to do all the little theming and stuff i've always wanted to do i'm excited yeah. about it yeah how yeah. have you been how was your time in my hometown my my time in Indianapolis was really wonderful. Very idyllic Christmas. I mean, beautiful neighborhoods full of houses from the 1800s covered in snow. It was just gorgeous. What a gorgeous town and time I had. Um, Joel's family does all book Christmas because his mom was a librarian. And just to keep them from being materialistic, you're only allowed to give or get books, which That's I incredible. Of love. Um, That's the family for you, kid. I know, I know. It, it just was, it was so cool. I loved it. I, I did see a movie at the Can Can Theater there, which is their um, newish and only not-for-profit art house cinema. Mm-hmm. And I, ha- I know that this is a movie that you saw as well and loved as much as I did. It's the very bizarrely maligned uh, Babylon. Damien Chazelle's Babylon, a.k.a. Cinema! I loved it. I, I fucking loved it. I loved it so much. I did not expect to like it as much as I did. Um, yeah, I feel like your tweet made it seem like you were surprised to like it as much as you did. Um, yeah. Yeah, I just loved I- it. And the people that I was with did not like it as much. They were both like three-star people. And I was like, this mm-hmm. is five stars. Um, I went with two friends, and we'd all been very... All three of us were excited to see it from when the trailers dropped. We were like, this looks like fun. It's either going to be messy, terrible. It's going to be messy, brilliant. It's going to land somewhere in between. And we sat down, and three hours later, walked out of the theater, and I was like on top of the world, cloud nine... I yeah. had been hooping and hollering and screaming and laughing and crying and like had gone through the gauntlet and I was inspired and motivated and moved and like 
feeling my corniest self. Uh, and as soon as we walked out of the theater, we like got all the way out, got to like back to the concession stands to like refill our sodas and stuff. And one of my friends was like, I have never felt held hostage by a movie before. And I was like, oh, oh no, gosh. I'm alone in liking this. They enjoyed it. And uh-huh. they liked a lot about it. They, but yeah, again, like three stars as much. They, they enjoyed it and they, they liked parts, but there was a lot of parts and a lot of elements that they didn't care for. And it was very fun to see it in theaters and see people walk up and leave mm-hmm. in certain yeah. sections. Yeah. Especially near the end, there's a big sequence at the end that is very much a big sequence. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I heard people grumbling to themselves as they left during that. <laughs> I was like, well, you suck, man. <laughs> I loved it. I thought it was so beautiful, that sequence that you're talking about. I thought the whole movie was messy in a brilliant way, in a way where it stuck the landing. I loved all the gross aspects of it that people have been complaining about. There's it lots of gross. pooping and vomiting and farting and stuff like that. But in a brilliant way, I just loved it. I I think the messiness of it is a feature, not a bug. I think it's beautiful chaos. It's so nice to see a big movie, like a big, big movie. I love mm-hmm. movies about movies. I love mm-hmm. movies about Hollywood, especially historic Hollywood. I absolutely just loved it. And how good is Marco Robbie in it? Like She's incredible. Oh my God. The role was originally supposed to be a base, was supposed to literally be Clara Bow, and it was supposed to be Emma Stone playing clara bow and when emma stone Mm. dropped out he rewrote the part entirely to be a fictitious and b for margot robbie and this part is for margot robbie it's It's, no one else could have done it it is so great i don't know how you feel about this movie i feel like you're not a tarantino person but i oh i literally mentioned to my friends while we were leaving and i was like I can't believe that we finally got a better movie about Hollywood that's a period film starring <laughs> Brad Pitt and Margot Robbie. Well, I actually, I actually really love Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and I like strongly dislike it. That's okay. That's okay. But I was thinking, like, if I had like a Sunday where I had the flu or something, I would love to watch these movies back to back. In would you go chronologically in order of when they are set? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Babylon into Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. I think um, look. I like the ending of Babylon a whole lot better than the ending of Hollywood. <laughs> I I guess uh, I would say that I do too. I don't have a problem with the end of Hollywood ba- or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I know I don't want to spoil that movie. I guess for anyone who hasn't seen it, I I understand that people do, and I understand the reasons why. I just don't happen to feel that way myself. <laughs> <laughs> I love I love Babylon. It really feels like if for some reason they let Eric von Stroheim, Steven Spielberg, John Waters, and Rainer Werder Fassbender like collaborate on a film together, yeah, it would be this. Uh, well, and there's parts of that I love, and there's parts of that I don't love, and I. But the overall culmination of that is just something that is so delectable and chaotic and emotional and saccharine and tasty and weird that I cannot yeah. love every bit of it. Similar to your um, shade with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I said to Joel afterward, I was like, it's like Baz Luhrmann, but good. Because <laughs> I hate Baz Luhrmann movies, and this mm-hmm. felt like a Baz Luhrmann movie that I liked. Yeah, it 
it really does in ways that Damien Chazelle has never really done before. It does kind of have that post nineties Scorsese, Paul Thomas Anderson, um, mm-hmm. Baz Luhrmann kind of style and energy to it's it. It's compared to Boogie Nights a lot. I've seen. Well, there's, and there's reason it, it has yeah. a lot in common with Boogie Nights in some respects. Um, I mean, it's singing in the rain meets Boogie Nights. Like, yeah. what's not to love about that? Like, yeah, absolutely. Um, I thought it was great. I loved it so much. I again don't think it is without flaws, and it is you know, there's parts of it that I like more than other parts of it. But as a whole, I think it's phenomenal. I think everyone should see it with your mom and dad in a big theater. Yeah, and have a big weird conversation after Here's about piss kinks and flea. It, it feels like people are rooting against it or in some ways celebrating its, fa- its supposed failure and not supposed, it's actual failure in theaters. And mm. I don't understand that. I don't understand why. I don't understand that. I feel like not a lot of people are seeing it. Yeah. I feel like it had a very bad marketing campaign. They spent a lot of their money making these really bad TikTok ads that oh, really? I didn't everyone has hated. They're not mm. good. And it's not the way to market this kind of movie. Um, and, you know, the people who did go to see it, uh, mostly not everyone has enjoyed it the way that mm. you and I have. Um, either because they think it's too corny mm-hmm. and too melodramatic and too long, or they think it's too gross and too weird and too long. Yeah. And the middle of that Venn diagram is us who think all of that is great and perfect and lovely. And so... People are just hearing, oh, it's corny. Oh, it's gross. Oh, it's this. Oh, it's that. And then they don't want to go see it. Mm. If you just, if listeners, if you like The Wolf of Wall Street, if you like Boogie Nights, if you like Goodfellas, if you like The Aviator, if you like anything by Martin Scorsese, if you like anything by Baz Luhrmann, if you like anything like that, if you like old Hollywood, that's the other thing. A lot of people that I know that are professional film critics that are steeped in old Hollywood are hating this movie and decrying mm. all the anachronisms throughout it. Who and cares? Being like, it's not based on that person. It's based on this person. And like, it's like, that's the point. The yes. point is that this is fiction. The people are harping on the title as if this was a direct adaptation of Kenneth Anger's book, Hollywood Babylon. It is not. Right. Hollywood Babylon has been debunked, and it's great. It's a great read. It's a great coffee table book. This has nothing to do with Hollywood Babylon other than the spirit and the idea of the quote-unquote underbelly of Hollywood at the turn of um, sound. Yeah. And it's great. I don't know. I loved it. Yeah. It gave me the same feeling as going to the Academy Museum for the first time. Where both experiences, I was like, this is going to be schmaltzy and lame and not have a lot of substance to it. And both of them, I walked out crying. Yeah. Well, At similar things, I mean, too. You're like me in that, you know, the closest thing that I have to a religion is movies, you Same. know? And mm-hmm. with that is with that comes Hollywood. I, I yeah. love Hollywood. I wouldn't be here if I didn't, you know? And that, to me, is, like, divine, you know? There's- so. There's just a love it. sequence in Babylon very much about the birth of sound and the like stumbling blocks of the birth of sound. 
And it's a lot of such a good scene. <laughs> my friends afterwards were like, "That was too long. It was so grating. It was it was so long. That scene could have been cut the no, fuck down." I and I was like, so "No, I wanted. I could have eaten that up so much more. Please, that's that's the shit I want to see." And and another friend of mine was like, "What what kind of scene were they even shooting with that? That's not real." I'm like, "Nope, that's a Dorothy Arzner movie. <laughs> like, yeah, that's a real movie." <laughs> Now, whenever Joel and I enter the room of the other one, we go, hello, college. college. <laughs> also, that movie is about my dog, Edie. That's her personality. Is that character that Marco Robbie is playing. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. Never let the party die. Um, yeah. I loved it. I thought it was great. Uh, how It is the end of the year. Mm-hmm. We are wrapping up. Um, really quickly, would you like to talk about what, for you, were the most important movies of 2022? What were the big heavy hitters? New movies? Yeah. Well, what were the 2020, Um, what's your tops of 22? Tops of 2022, um, horror and non-horror, I would put Tar in there. Mm -hmm. I would put Triangle of Sadness in there. I would put, um, uh... This movie, Babylon, in there. Nope. I would put in there. I would put in Barbarian. And then, uh, you know, also ran, like, kind of runner-up, I think, Watcher. That was 2022, right? Um, yes. I did finally really watch that. Really loved that. Oh, yeah, you watched this week, right? I thought it was only just okay. Oh, okay. I really liked it. So those those were probably my faves. What about you? Um, I, I have a nifty little letterbox list up. <laughs> okay, here we go. I've been keeping one all year. Um, my, I'll go, I'll, I'll do, I'll do a cheeky little 11 just for okay. Spinal Tap reasons. And because mm-hmm. I feel bad if I don't have Guillermo del Toro on the list because sure. Pinocchio came in at number 11 for me. Uh, I loved mm-hmm. it. It was great. Um, but a big year. So Pinocchio. Okay. Nope. Mm-hmm. Pearl. Oh, Pearl, Pearl was a yes, big yes, heavy yes. hitter. Yeah, agreed. Um, Glass Onion. Oh my god, I'm forgetting. God, yes. Okay, Tar. Keep going. Sorry. Yeah. I think I think our lists are going to be almost identical. Yeah, I only picked five, so yeah. of course there's going to be things not on mine. The worst person in the world. <gasps> yes. Okay. See, I keep saying that's my number one, but then people say that's from 2021. If you I'm went like, to Whoa. festivals in 2021, it got its theatrical okay. release in 2022. Thank you. If you, okay, so by that standard, that's my number one. Yeah. Um, Triangle of Sadness. Mm-hmm. The Banshees of Inisherin. I haven't seen that yet, but very excited too. You're going to love it. Crimes of the Future, which was my number one that. all year, and then it got mm-hmm. dethroned twice by RRR. Mm-hmm. Loved. And then my number one is Babylon. Like, oh, I love that Babylon is your number one. I love that. RRR is so Uh, good. And Crimes is so good. Like, it's what a fucking year. And we still also had Moon Age Daydream and See How They Run and Wendell and Wild and Barbarian Mm -hmm. and Kimmy and The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. And wait, did you have Triangle of Sadness on your list? Yes, I did. Right? Yeah, Triangle of Sadness was number big old number five. Okay, great. What a what a year. That's a great list. What yeah. a good year. Honestly, what it was. A good year. In horror and out of horror. 
Um, and we also, uh, you know, Bros came out this year, which was bad. That was a movie. <laughs> that was a movie. <laughs> they put film in a camera and they had actors in front of it. And it was put into movie theaters. So let's give Billy Eichner a round of applause. I have not seen it, but I made a short film this year uh, with an actor who is in Bros, and I love him. So um, his name is Matt Wilkes. I'm very glad when he is doing things. He's very talented and handsome. That's all. (laughs) (laughs) Talented and handsome people, that's the appeal of Bros. Yeah. Speaking of talented and handsome. Yes. Let's get to it. So, this is a movie that is that has everything. It's got snakes. It's got sweaters. It's got paganism. It's got nuns. It's got, it's got snakes and ladders. It's got vintage jaguars. It's yes. got uh, the ideal erotic body, according to the characters of the film, <laughs> i.e. the trans body. Um yeah. it, it has, uh, like, video-grade quality nun-rape sequences and snake crucifixions yes we are of course talking about the ken russell joint from 1988 lair of the white worm one two three four john dobson went up fishing one out fishing in the weir he caught a fish up on his hook. He thought it looked mighty queer. Now what the kind of fish it was, John Dampton couldn't tell. But he didn't like the look of it, so he threw it down a well. Ha! Now the worm got fat and growed, and growed an awful size. With great big teeth and a great big mouth and great big goggle eyes. And when at night it crawled about, all looking for some booze. If it felt dry upon the road, it milked a dozen crows. <laughs> Ugh. How good is this movie? Talk about what a, a five star movie. This is one. <laughs> I mean, from the gate, based on a story by Bram Stoker. Yes. And it owes um, a lot to Dracula, because the man knew how it, to write one book. Yep. And directed by Ken Russell at the tail end of his 80s period that gave us altered states in crimes of fashion. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning of their careers, the leads <coughs> are Hugh Grant and Peter Capaldi. Both of whom are absolutely incredible in this. Um, you also have Amanda Donahue, who I read in the Wikipedia was meant to be Tilda Swinton, but oh she passed God. on it when reading the script. But I didn't even know Tilda Swinton was a thing in 1988, frankly. Um, Tilda was mostly doing Derek Jordan films in the 80s. <coughs> and that would explain that why sense. Ken Russell wanted her. Yeah. Um, where to begin? I guess I'll try to give you a little synopsis, listener. This is a folk horror movie, technically. Uh, as Drusilla mentioned, it is based on a Bram Stoker novel from 1911. Uh, and um, essentially, we are following a young archaeologist student, played by Peter Capaldi, who is Scottish, but he's in rural England, where he's staying on a country, staying at a country inn with two adult daughters, whose parents have recently gone missing and are presumed 
you know, dead. Also, in the movie, this is hard to explain, actually. Um, Hugh Grant plays a local uh, aristocrat who owns all of the land, and he is the heir of um, a supposed knight who killed a dragon a thousand years prior. At the start of the movie, our archaeologist has dug up on the farm the skull of what he thinks is a dinosaur, which precipitates all of the action of the movie. Um, I'm just totally lost now. Help me out here, Drusilla. <laughs> I've like lost the plot. That's about it. The only other thing is that, uh, as you mentioned, some people have disappeared in the woods yes. uh, around this mysterious... Uh, gothic hack chateau that is yes, typically left empty temple and no house. one no one knows the the owner of temple house until this sleek 1960s jaguar starts driving around and they meet sylvia lady sylvia, sylvia Marsh, another aristocrat um who has uh... the most incredible style in the goddamn world yeah. she's dressed like she's walking out of an adam ant video in every yes. single frame. And she may or may not be some kind of snake vampire worshiping a giant snake god. <laughs> Spoiler alert, she is. Um, <laughs> I put on my most layer of the white worm sweater to join this uh, recording, but I had to take it off because I was too hot. I'm drinking hot coffee. But it is like a forest green cowl neck sweater. And it really speaks to the aesthetic of this movie, which is that moment... This movie, fashion-wise, is very ahead of the time because I associate mm-hmm. this look with the 90s and not the 80s. But there was a moment from, like, late 80s to early 90s, pre-grunge, pre-like gangster rap, the aesthetics that defined the 90s, where the world was kind of looking for an aesthetic, and it seemed for a few years like it was Ireland. Like, this, <laughs> the aesthetic was slouchy sweaters, like, messy hair, bagpipe music for some reason, you know, like, <laughs> Which circle of friends of with Mini Driver. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was forest green. It was burgundies. It was, like, these earthy, naturalistic colors. It's the cranberries sort of have that aesthetic um, as a band. So that's the, those are the waters that we're swimming in in this movie. And it's delicious. It is folk horror as funneled through like very highbrow 80s fashion. And I'm here for it. I mean, Mm -hmm. Amanda Donahue as Lady Sylvia Marsh is like the baddest bitch there has ever been. (laughs) In anything ever. Yeah. You can't top it. She is... She's so great. I mean, <gasps> she somehow mixes high fashion elegance with severe dominatrix vibes while yeah. also performing snake dances anytime anyone blows any kind of musical instrument. <laughs> yeah. And it all works. <laughs> And it's yes, all it all works. I mean, it's a comedy. I mean, Ken Russell always said that his movies are comedies and people didn't get it. This one is like more bald face a comedy than than another movie we've covered in episode one, The Devils, which is a lot harder to laugh at than this is. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Devils is not devoid of giggles, let me just say it's this. Not, not at all, but it's also horrific in a way that this isn't really. Like, this is no. a great movie and it does actually have scares in it, but it's more... It's more fun. Obviously a comedy. We get a lot of um, visions and dream sequences in this movie. One of which straight out of the devils. mm -hmm. 
one of which involves two women fighting on the floor while Hugh Grant raises a pen in his lap. And it's mm-hmm. a very, like, <laughs> we know what's going on here kind of visual. <laughs> yeah. but, and they keep cutting back to it to just, like, hammer it home. They know what they're yeah. doing. It's super, super fun. The snake fang effects, it's not like a sudden, like, reveal of, like, oh, my God, vampire fangs and stuff. We haven't seen any indication of this being a very serious quality to his characters until Lady Sylvia Marsh sees a crucifix on the wall and then quickly whips around fangs and, like, spits venom onto venom. it in, like, one so quick good. shot. And it's like, oh, so that's good. what we're doing now. We're running yeah. around yards with, like, giant, like, five-inch fangs sticking out of our mouths. Got it. <laughs> yeah. That's the mood. Let's go. So just to put things in order, I guess the first thing that really happens is our, our Angus, our Scottish archaeologist student, digs up this skull in the farm of Mary and Eve, who are two really hot early 20s-something farm girls who run their parents' inn. And this is like very, you're, this is rural England. So these are the kind of people that say me instead of my. You know what I mean? Like one of the per- first lines of the movie is Mary going, oh, me spotted dick and running inside because her spotted dick, I guess, is burning. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are like country people. And Mary played learn- by Sammy Davis, who looks exactly like a 1980s Kate McKinnon. Yes, very much. Also, like, um, for any Gen Xers who might be listening, Emily Valentine from Beverly Hills 90210, who you might know, uh, her name is Christina Lee, and she's on Chucky now, which I haven't seen. (gasps) But um, in the 90s, she was like the it alt girl. She was the alt character on 90210 for like two years. She burned the parade float. (laughs) <laughs> because she was mad at Brandon, <laughs> the, the homecoming parade float she set on fire. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, he digs up this skull. He thinks it's um a, maybe a dinosaur skull. They're telling him it's a cow, um, but it's definitely not. And we learned that this was the site of a convent a thousand years ago when the Romans were in this land. This used to be a place called Mercia. Um. So that's what sets us up. But it's also the same day as the local lordship's annual party. This is Hugh Grant. So they go to Hugh Grant's mansion and they have a big celebration with the hottest band ever. Sort of like Dexy's Midnight Runners. Meets the (laughs) Pogues. They're called the Tossers, which is even better. Playing the song of the Dampton Worm. And they have a giant worm puppet come out. So cool. beautiful. And Hugh Grant just casually, like, limp-wristedly, like, touches it with his sword, and it, like, falls into two pieces. Yes, it splits in half. So this is a celebration that they have every year for the local people. The rich people do this. His family, I guess. And it's to celebrate the the story that his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather um, slew the local worm dragon. And, um, Yeah. It's based on a real folklore, actually. Yes. The Lambton Worm um, from Durham in northeast England. Um, Yes. And, of course, they very quickly changed it to Dampton, which sounds nothing like Lambton. 
Don't you dare <laughs> accuse them of anything else. Branch I feel like the Lambton worm doing. is probably public domain by now. Yeah, I, yeah. It's probably safe. Um, um, so two yeah, quick Russell said oh, about that, which is mm-hmm. a. I really want to design a, a Dampton worm cocktail based on this movie that Ooh. is like the electric green of the snake venom. Yes, I want to make this. Um, Could it and, have gummy worms inside of it, like mm-hmm. a gummy worm as a garnish? Yes. Well, the, she like pours them like drinks with absinthe and stuff too. So I want to like. I want to find I want to find a way of making a very like poisony kind of snake venom cocktail for this movie. I want to design this. The What's other thing a... yeah, is that the history of the Lambton worm mm. uh the year after this was made, this came out in 1988 and 1989, Anthony Schaefer, who made another incredible British folk horror movie, The Wicker Man, mm-hmm. uh wrote an entire screenplay called The Loathsome Lambton Worm, intended to be a sequel to The Wicker Man. Ooh. About wow. this legend. Is that a coincidence? Um it was I it's a coincidence that was that it was being worked on at the same time around the same time. Yeah. That's what it I is asked. not a coincidence that it didn't happen because this movie happened. Yeah. Well, Ken Russell had always wanted to do an adaptation of um, Bram Stoker's Dracula. And -hmm. then somebody, I think the producer was like, well, why don't you just do a different Bram Stoker property? Uh, So this is this is the one. Although Ken Russell felt that the novel was pretty disappointing. It's like he's like, you know, your point. He was like Bram Stoker made one story and there's one good version and then there are like copies of copies of copies and this is one of the copy of a copy of a copy so he really improved it in in his own words and part of that was by using the story of the lambton worm incorporating that into this so yeah that's the history of it uh we could talk about the score the score is really surprising it's like Jazz music reminded me very much of um, Audrey Horn's theme in the show Twin Peaks. You know, it's mm-hmm. kind of got a David Lynch vibe There's about it. There's a lot it. of Twin Peaks vibes to this movie, too. Yeah. Again, very ahead of its time aesthetically, this. It's mm-hmm. not very 1988. It's very 1991, 1992. So it's a good way ahead of its time. Well, visually, it's just super, super gorgeous. And the, the cinematography is stunning. There's wonderful wonderful use of wide angle lenses mm-hmm. throughout the movie that remind me so much of what the coen brothers would eventually be doing in the late 80s and early 90s mm-hmm. that are really ahead of its time and again it's like ken russell's career changed and reformed multiple different times for a long time he was just doing these gorgeous like kind of queer melodramas like mm-hmm. women in love and the music lovers and a lot of stuff that he was doing at the BBC. Um, and then we get the devils out of fucking nowhere. The yeah. same year that he starts making his transition and doing his insane musicals. So we get the boyfriend the same year as the devils and the boyfriend is like a nearly three hour long G rated musical about people God. putting on a musical <laughs> and it's great. And it is like the polar opposite of the devils and they were yeah. made at the same time. And then 
that's when we get Tommy and Litsomania and Mahler, mm-hmm. which there's a nod to Mahler in Lair of the White Worm. Uh, Hugh yep. Grant has a book of uh, on Gustav Mahler. You know, same with... So I feel like Lydia Tarr would appreciate that. I feel like she'd be a big <laughs> fan of Lair of the White Worm. Uh, <laughs> um, and then, again, like, after, like, a series of those... We get another inflection point in his career with Altered States and in 1980, and he starts discovering like early video technology and using that to create these insane surreal sequences. And it's, you know, a very like drastic visual degrade from 35 millimeter into these video sequences, but the way he's able to Mm -hmm. drop in and out effects and backgrounds to create these really like, lavish insane sequences that feel like ripped from the most rejected mtv music videos possible shoved into these big art films is incredible it's cool it really works and it's Um, probably on display best in layer of the white worm yeah and i did feel like it was cool to see some of um the devils in here so some of these mm-hmm. sequences are none nun orgies basically um you get roman soldiers having sex with nuns you get the snake on the cross they're straight out of the devils but now in this sort of video art aesthetic um i, I maybe you're closer to like art snob circles than i am do you <laughs> think that ken <laughs> do you think uh-huh. that ken russell gets his his due it seems to me that he's not considered quite up there in the pantheon of great directors with you know your scorseses your lynches your like all of these art house people do you think that that's true and if so why not it's a real shame because he should be he should be on the exact same plane as ingmar bergman and anya's farda and Jean-Luc Godard and the really challenging filmmakers of that era. Like I would place them with like Brian De Palma, maybe like those two. Oh, or... yes. I think for my money personally, and I'm, you know, yeah. an American Midwesterner, I think Ken Russell is the most important cinematic voice to come out of England since Powell and Pressburger. Wow. Okay. By like a long shot. Um, English filmmaking is incredible and amazing, and it's, you know, a whole history of great film and great art that we don't acknowledge enough in America. Mm -hmm. But even within that, Ken Russell's not acknowledged enough as being truly the mad genius that he is. And, you know, he had giant hits that are still giant hits. Like, Tommy will never not be probably his biggest film. Yeah. Because it's the Who movie. It's the Who, Um, yeah. But it's a real shame because, you know, there's, like, Women in Love is just, like, a straight-up art film. And it has more to do with early David Lean films than it does with The Devils or Lair of the White Worm. And it's gorgeous and super powerful in its own right. And he has that string of movies that are only appreciated by the, like, we'll say art snob community. But those people, more often than not, don't want to go watch and appreciate the devils and altered states. Yeah. And so it's really odd because he has, like, a cult following 
from horror and genre communities for his 80s output. And then he has a cult following from music fans for his 70s output. And from 60s output for his, uh, by his, you know, kind of art snob fans. But it's all the same. It's all the same voice. It's the same ideas being flown through. And being talking about the art of cinema and talking about art house. And this is the exact same conversation we were having about Babylon is mm-hmm. taking the beauty with the grotesque and equal measure is like not looking at genre and accepting this all as like parts of a whole. I yeah. really wish that a more Ken Russell movies would be made available uh, in the yeah, U.S. I really want to see horror again. I really want to see a horror. It's getting a U.S. Blu-ray release from Kino Lover yes, very soon. Very excited for that. But um, and I and of course, like I will continue being drum for another fucking two decades that we need the devils on home video. Yes, um, of course. Obviously, our, epi- our first need... episode, by the way, listener, one of the greatest films of all time. Like maybe the greatest film of all time. But you know, you can easily get Tommy. But it's really hard to get Mahler. Mahler's not on home video. It's really no. hard to get the music lovers. It's really hard to get Litzomania. It's really hard to get a lot of his really incredible, incredible films. Um, I would love to see them made fully available. Put them all on the Criterion channel for streaming access. Let's get them on disc. Um, but also, I would love for someone to program a retrospective of his work here in Los Angeles, separating Mm -hmm. them from genre ties, put the music lovers on a double bill with Lair of the White Worm. Yeah. Play uh, Rainbow or Whore or Salome's Last Dance with um, Women in Love. Play the Devils with the Boyfriend. Like, smash them together. Because that's, they're all Ken. Like, that's his thing. You can't separate them. Yeah. I was trying to think of something to pair with this for a double feature, and I couldn't think of anything that's like this. I mean, it's so unusual and special. Um, It's really the the use of camp and style and sexuality and humor and horror in this. It's really, really hard to find something that hits the same tone. Yeah. Which is why this is a hard movie to kind of sell people on. I had friends over last night and I was kind of like, oh, I forgot to watch the movie for the broadcast this week. Let's put on Lair of the yeah. White Worm. This will be fun. It's streaming on the Criterion channel. Let's, let's, it's probably streaming on like five other places too, thankfully. Let's go put this on. One of my friends was crazy into it. Everything that happened, every new costume, every new set piece, every new hallucination. She was all over. My other friend, who is much more of an art snob, much more into art house cinema than genre cinema, was just, like, really put out and really just, like, had Mm. no clue what he was watching, didn't Mm. know how to process it, found it goofy and not in a, like, intentional way, thought it was just kind of, like, stupid. Um, And it's really odd and a shame, because this movie's fucking great. The closest thing that I could think to pair it with um is from 1989 
Um, and also a kind of warped readaptation of an existing horror property. Um, mm-hmm. Steven Saadian's Dr. Caligari. Oh, I've never seen the 80s version of, yeah, I've never seen the 80s version of that. It has a very similar attitude towards sex and horror, a very similar mm-hmm. attitude towards camp humor and the genre space, and an absolutely out-of-this-world costume and set design and performance style that is very arch, that is very stylized. Um, and you either love it or it's just not for you even remotely. Yeah. So Ken Russell did show the actors um, scenes from Oscar Wilde's The Importance of Being Earnest and said, that's how I want your performances to be. So they are (laughs) over-the-top comic performances. They're They're very intentionally doing like British drawing room comedy. And it's great. It's so fabulous. Um, the closest that I could think of for a pairing, by the way, was um, Cemetery Man, which we've also covered. <gasps> Cemetery um, Man would be very good with this. It's not a perfect one-to-one, but it's like the best that I could do. Um, to get back to the story of this movie, I guess, um, there is a break in the case of the missing parents. So our four young people, the Scotsman, the nobleman, and the two girls are investigating that while we follow Lady Sylvia Marsh the glamorous snake vampire woman as she preys on a few victims. First, a policeman, which is a great scene, but then like a Cub Scout, I think. I don't know what he is. He's like a Boy Scout. He's, yeah, he's a Boy Scout. He's like he's on his way to uh, the youth hostel and he cannot be more than 16 years old. No, he's definitely underage. And it's a whole seduction sequence where she picks him up hitchhiking in the rain. She plays snakes and ladders with him, which is like the British version of shoots and ladders. Um, She's wearing lingerie and thigh high rubber boots. Um, And then she takes him to a hot tub and like very, you know, very clearly is going to fuck him, at least in his mind. And then she bites his dick. Her fangs come out and she bites his dick off camera. And that was the first, like, jump scare that I had in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> it really scared me. There's a lot about phallicists in this movie. Oh, um, a surprise to no one. Ken Russell loves dick. Loves a boner. <laughs> if, if anyone who hasn't seen his film Litsomania with Roger Daltrey as Franz Liszt, that movie, like, every, like, column is a penis. Every sword is a penis. Like, the set and production design is just dick, 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 dick. It's, yeah. gee, I love him so much. And part of that is really, really strong. In this movie, they find cave drawings in a cave that is connected to where some people have disappeared. And that might be connected to Lady Sylvia's manor. Depicting, they're like simple cave illustrations of like stick figure women with long phalluses and Hugh Grant and Peter Capaldi find these and they're both like, ah, the ideal body, the, the peak pleasurable form. And it's like, okay, this is chaser time guys. Trans women superiority. (laughs) And at the end of it all, Lady Sylvia whips out the most monster, terrifying dildo this side of seven. Pointed dildo. um. That has to be (laughs) screwed on and off. (laughs) 
Yes, it is a sort of strap-on pointed wooden dildo. It is for the ritual of sacrificing a virgin. One of the girls is presumed to be a virgin and is going to be fed to a giant snake, which is, I guess, spoiler alert, she is in a snake cult. Um, There is a real white worm. And uh, it's been alive all this time down there in those caverns. And, um, yeah. The... One of my favorite parts of this entire movie and parts of her Ken Russell's adaptation and part of her performance is the way that Lady Sylvia commits to the absolute bit of snakes. Everything in her life is snake related. Like her 60s Jaguar looks like a snake. She dresses and moves like a snake. She plays snakes and ladders. It literally reminds me of the line from Suspiria of people's whose names start with the S are the names of snakes. Snakes. <laughs> yes. There's an iconic scene in this movie. It's on the key art for the movie, the cover art, uh, where oh. Hugh Grant decided he's going to lure her to his house. So he uh, puts speakers all over his house and puts on snake charming music. And then she pops out of a basket like a snake. And you one wonders why she was hanging out in a basket, but we'll let it go. Because <laughs> like, presumably she's now charmed and hypnotized, and she starts to involuntarily dance her way over to his house. But it's like, what was she doing inside of a basket? Like <laughs> When that scene happened, my friend who wasn't very into the movie, like, it cuts to that, and you just see a basket, and he was like, no! No! They're, no, come on! And she, like, slithers out of it, and he was like, god fucking damn it. And I was like, yeah! It's so That's good. where How we are! feel that way? Imagine feeling that way about the scene. I cannot. Lame! <laughs> because I Lame. love it. Uh, <laughs> heterosexuals, how do they do it? I don't know. I don't know. This movie is so just truly a gift. So, okay. It's Ken Russell. We have discussed mm-hmm. the artistic merits and importance of Ken Russell as a filmmaker and as an artist. Yeah. That being said, with The Layer of the White Worm as one of his works of art, mm-hmm. what is, for you, the interpretation and the meaning of the layer of the white worm as a piece of art. Ooh. Oh gosh. Really putting me on the spot. Um, yeah, bitch. (laughs) Welcome to the show. We talk about movies, Josh. Do you remember this? I mean, I know, but we never talk about movies. Uh, (laughs) I mean, it's, I think it's like about a like Christian fear of raw sexuality, right? So you've got the, history of the convent versus this pagan snake cult you've got the phallicis you've got the you know it's always the it's a vampire movie on some level right so oh very much so always people get turned fear. into the snake people yeah snake vampires. they're always in some way about the fear of raw sexuality so i guess mm-hmm. that if i'm being put on the spot which i am i mean i think i definitely agree especially with this movie ends spoiler alert the ending, ending, ending of this movie. Lady Sylvia, Lady Sylvia is fed to the large snake, who is mm-hmm. then exploded. Uh, and Peter Capaldi style, <laughs> Jaws style, and then Peter Capaldi brings a, a serum that he's had made to inject him and all of his friends to make sure that they don't get turned into 
these evil snake vampires. And he and Hugh Grant are going to go to the pub, get a beer, and check in on the girls to make sure they're all okay. And he gets a phone call from the hospital who's uh, from a woman who's like, Hey, by the way, uh, I switched up those samples, so I didn't give you the snake antidote. But don't worry, like, there's no snakes this time of year. You should be fine. You shouldn't need that anyway. Yeah. And then he gets back into the car with Hugh Grant, and they both suddenly have, like, low-lit lighting. They're both looking very arch and very evil. And they're like, everything okay? Everything okay. Let's go. And then Hugh Grant puts his hand on Peter Capaldi's leg and pushes up his kilt... Why he does this unprompted is up to the imagination of the viewer, but he well, then reveal <laughs> mm-hmm, then reveals two insanely large bite marks on Peter Capaldi's leg, and then we cut straight to black and credits. And I love some gay horny vampire s- mm-hmm. snake boyfriends. They're poisoned. They're be- both becoming vampires, and and they're horny. and they're in love. Love it. They're in love. <laughs> love. I mean. So much of this movie is a fun, campy celebration of queerness, of trans bodies, mm-hmm. of, you know, raw sexuality and desire. And the humor of the movie is kind of the prudent fear of this thing. Yeah. I, she has I a lovely speech at one point about why she hates, in her words, the false god, Jesus, and nuns this long rant about how your false god takes all of his virgin brides and locks them up in a convent where they masturbate themselves silly all night long and then whip themselves into a frenzy in the morning to get out the guilt and i'm like yep that's what i love nuns dude (laughs) ken shares (laughs) my kinks love you sir yeah well, also, I mean, when you're talking about that, the god they worship is called Dionin or something like that. And and then she has Dionin. a prayer to Dionin. Thank you. She has a prayer to him that's like Dionin, who was in the garden and gave us the gift of knowledge for which the false god, um, you know, banished him, banished him. So it's it's like implying that, you know, it's sort of the inverse of Christianity, right? The knowledge that the snake gave Adam and Eve was a gift, all of these sorts of things. So, yeah. yeah, that ties in directly to what you were talking about. Knowledge, pleasure, intelligence are a gift. They're not mm-hmm. something to be punished and feared of the way that Christianity teaches. It's sort of an yeah. insanely anti-Christian film. <laughs> yeah, surprise, surprise, Ken Russell has a beef with Christianity. Still? <laughs> 17 years later and he still has... What's with that guy? I... Um, was thinking I I mentioned it as a joke, but then I thought it would actually be a really good highbrow, lowbrow double bill with this. So lowbrow tremors, highbrow <sighs> layer of the white worm. That's yeah. a good double feature. You're correct. Yeah, and it's like they're both comedies, and they're both campy, and like um, mm-hmm. one of them has Reba. <laughs> <laughs> I'm now just trying to imagine Reba and Layer of the White Worm. She'd be great. <laughs> She'd be great. She'd fit right the fuck in. Yeah. She's campy enough. We love Reba, oh Trish. Uh, <laughs> Trish. <laughs> All right. Listen, let's play Have They Seen It, the game where we speculate wildly whether or not notable figures have seen this movie. Um, I've mentioned this person earlier. 
Do you think that Tilda Swinton has seen Lair of the White Worm? Uh, I don't think so. However, I like to imagine that a few years after this came out, or maybe even like a few like decades later after Ken Russell died in the mid-2000s, she finally went back and watched it and was like, fuck, I should have done that. Damn yeah, it. What a fool. Who what a fool I role? was. That's crazy pants. I mean, she had to go do Edward II for Derek Jarman or whatever Derek Jarman was doing at the time, so... Yeah, I mean, I love Derek Jarman, of course, but she's been in some real turds of movies, so I don't know why she couldn't do Lair of the White Worm, but okay, Tilda. <laughs> All right, honey. you. She would have done a lovely little snake dance. However, Amanda Donahue is so great Incredible. that yeah. I'm pleased to have her. And hopefully Tilda can enjoy Amanda's performance all these years later. Mm. Um, the one that I want to know, someone who has also adapted the great works of Bram Stoker, but we also know is a sex nerd because he hates other art house, sexy movies. Mm-hmm. Do you think enemy of this podcast, Francis Ford Coppola has seen Lair of the White Wolf? <laughs> First of all, he's not enemy of this podcast. Because he hates he crash. He might as well be. But we love Bram Stoker's Dracula. We'll do it eventually. I, we it's, do. It's one of my favorite films ever made. It's it's his best too. work. So we the Godfather be damned. Him. Dracula's where it's Although at. Although he, he did ever... hate David Cronenberg's Crash uh, because it was too horny. That's what um, I'm saying. I do think that he has seen this. And I don't think that this is too horny for him. I'm going to give okay. him some credit. Okay. Because okay. this is not... A challenging kind of horny, like crashes. It's fun, right? inviting horny. It's fun, basically like Rocky Horror Picture Show horny, like yes, celebratory, but innocent enough. So I'm going to say that he's seen this because he probably sees everything. And um, I think that he would like it. I think he's cool enough for this, actually. That's my hot take. That's, um, you know what? Fair. What do you, do you think that he has seen this and likes it? I feel like he hasn't seen it. However, mm-hmm. I feel like Roman Coppola has seen it, and I feel like Roman Coppola loves it. I Roman Coppola, fair. of course, the director, uh, his yeah. son, and who worked on Bram Stoker's Dracula for his father, doing a lot of the special effects work. Well, listen, while we're talking Coppola's, we might as well throw Sophia in there. What do you think Sophia thinks? Yeah, has Domino seen it? <laughs> uh, I do not think Sophia Coppola has seen this movie. I feel Are you like, a fan of Sophia Coppola? I like, her, I like her films well enough. Yeah. Me too. I like Virgin Suicides, and I like Marie Antoinette. Mm-hmm. I just feel like if, if Sophia Coppola was over at a friend's house... Whether, like, as a teenager in the 80s or, like, nowadays. Uh, and she was having a bit of Coppola Vineyard wine with her friends. And someone was like, oh my god, Sophia, we're gonna put on a movie. Let's watch Lair of the White Worm. She would go, ugh, no. And, like, put on something <laughs> else. That's that's my speculation. Yeah. Um, um, I have a question. I have someone in mind. Okay. The stars of this film, much bigger now than they were at the time. Yes? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In the 1980s, what was Hugh Grant doing other than trying to perfect his hair? What was Peter Capaldi doing? 
Yeah, it's it's ugh, it's so foppish in the best way. Yeah. Meanwhile, Peter Capaldi was trying to perfect punk rock. Peter mm-hmm. Capaldi was in the band The Dream Boys, mm-hmm. who were pretty freaking great, along with another member who went on to be pretty freaking famous by this point in the here in the future uh, on American television, a little man named Craig Ferguson, who used to host yes. The Late Late Show. Yes. Who we know is a fan of camp and insanity and robots. Do you think Craig Ferguson went to go see his old bandmate in Layer of the White Worm? 100%. I haven't thought of Craig Ferguson in a long time. Um, but yeah, I like Craig Ferguson. I, love, I have these the only late night shows I've ever myself. enjoyed. Yeah, I'm searching myself and I feel positively about him, which I, I didn't know how I felt about him. Yeah, I think he saw this. I think he liked it. For sure. I feel like Craig Ferguson owns multiple copies of this movie and gives them out to friends. <laughs> Every format going back to VHS. The only man who, on this earth to own a Betamax of Layer of the White Worm, Craig yeah. Ferguson. He just loves his friends and he loves a good time. Yeah. I think he would appreciate the aesthetic of this, too. And that song by the Tossers, I think he would like. Um, that song is fucking great. It's really good. That's a great, great, great scene. And that singer is so hot. He's so um, hot. Oh, my God. Yeah. With a little bandana around the neck. I don't know. I, this has gone out of style for the gays. But a few years ago, that's a look that really drives me wild. Is like a scruffy man with like a little bandana around his neck. Mm-hmm. I'm into that look. I'm um, into that look. So I like... In, I like a hunky Bogdanovich, is what I'm saying. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, so, Hugh Grant was revealed to be the lover of Benoit Blanc in Glass Onion. And presumably, if this becomes a franchise, we'll get lots more of him, I hope. Yes, he was. Do you think, <laughs> do you think that Benoit Blanc, a.k.a. Daniel Craig, has seen Lair of the White Worm? Okay, I'm going to take these as two separate individuals. Okay, great. I think Daniel Craig has probably seen Layer of the White Worm. He's very cineliterate. He's seen a lot of movies. He's a big cinephile. Um, I feel like he probably has, and I think he thinks it's super freaking fun. Um, I feel like he and Rachel Weisz cuddle up on the couch together and watch weird shit like this. Yeah. Um, Benoit Blanc... I feel like probably has seen this also. I feel like this is the kind of thing that like he would be in the middle of a very serious like confrontation thing and then like toss out a reference to the Dampton Worm and he'd be like, is that, is that a kind of Russell reference? Yeah, I think that they would both like it, but for different reasons. And I think yes. for Benoit Blanc, it's the costumes. He's like, yes. <laughs> fabulous costumes or whatever. Hallelujah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like they would also have very different favorite Ken Russell films. I feel like yeah. Daniel Craig would love Altered States and would love mm-hmm. Litzomania. No, I take that back. Daniel Craig would love Altered States and Crimes of Passion. Mm-hmm. I feel like, and maybe Women in Love, I feel like <laughs> Benoit Blanc would love Litzomania and would love Mahler. He would love the music ones because he is a theater boy at heart, as we have learned from yeah. him singing scene in Sondheim and Knives Out. Yeah. 
Well, listener, that's it for this episode of Bloodhouse. Thank you so much for listening. You can email us at bloodhousepod at gmail. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram, bloodhousepod. Um, Drusilla, where can people find you? I am not on Twitter. You can't find me there even remotely. Uh, but you can find me on Instagram at Hyde Sister, H-Y-D-E-S-I-S-T-E-R. My art and my work is over at SisterHydeDesign.com, and I'm on Letterboxd. Just search for my name. You'll find me, and you'll find all the weird little shit I've been watching lately. Josh, what about you? Where do you lurk on the interwebs? I'm at Joshua Conkle on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Now, we have a few special episodes coming up because our one-year anniversary is fast approaching. However... Next week is our 50th episode, which is pretty big, too. So, Drusilla, what are we watching for our 50th? Well, we have gotten so good at summoning gigantic white worms that it might be time that we go back, hone our skills, and try to become better practitioners by watching Robert Eggers' The Witch. Wouldst thou like to live deliciously? (laughs) Cannot wait for that. See you next week. Thank you.